happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday, dear Financial Wellbeing Podcast. Happy birthday to us. Now, you may well ask yourself, why is this man singing rather poorly down the line to us? The reason being, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that today or roundabout today marks the fifth anniversary of the start of the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. I have sat here, I think this is the 74th time in a variety of different locations, talking about financial well-being and alongside me throughout all of those varied encounters is Chris Budd. Chris, happy birthday. Hey, happy birthday. Five years. Honestly, when we started the podcast, I remember going to people and saying, I'm going to start a podcast. And they laughed, David. Uh, it reminds me of the, the great Bob Monkhouse joke when he says, uh, when I was young, I said to everybody I wanted to be a comedian and they laughed at me. Well, they're not laughing now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, five long years, been great. And uh, we've covered so much ground in those five years, haven't we? My goodness. We have indeed. And with us for nearly all of those uh, podcasts, not quite all of them, uh, is our other regular, Tom Morris. Tom, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, it's all all very exciting. I must admit, um, when you see, and it's great because, you know, people, there's so much choice of podcasts you can listen to now, uh, which is the whole point of it, really. When you see, can you, can you remember that meme or, or that uh, clip um, where that lady who was asked about their general like in Bristol? What? Not another one. <laughs> um, I almost get that sense whenever I see another podcast release, but then I realise that's great. That's more content for people to listen to. But I do like to drop in. Yeah, five years in, guys. We were we st- we were here when it when there was hardly anyone listening for a start. Well, we still um, are. <laughs> <laughs> The biggest thing for the for us is actually some of the doors just opened for myself and Chris. We got we we've been invited along by Dow, the big Dow Technologies, the the big uh, IT company. They've asked us to come along and speak at their small business owners' uh, conference about the topic of financial well-being. Now that certainly wouldn't have happened without this podcast being around because that's how they found us. So it's opened some interesting doors where we can get the message out there. I certainly think it helped create the momentum for the initiative and the financial been quite well-being. A few- Quite a few listeners have become clients of Ovation. As yeah, well. a few but, listeners have become look, clients. It's, it's been, been great. Fun. It's been yeah. fun. That's the thing. And, and I, I love I, I love doing the research that goes into all of it. I've learned so much from the whole process. So, yeah, happy, happy birthday to us. We're five years old and hopefully maybe even five years more. It has indeed been a lot of fun. And I'm glad that at least you two are benefiting financially from all the podcasts that we've done. <laughs> That's called a pointed comment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right, moving swiftly on, he said bitterly. Uh, what are we talking about today, Chris? So today, David, we have an interview with Ash Phillips. Ash uh, is a very interesting chap. He's got his finger in quite a few pies, but they're all around the startup businesses. He was a founder of an organization called Yenna, which is a support network for startup businesses, which is recently rebranded to Different, which in the modern way is... The word different, but with all the vowels removed, if anybody wants to look him up. But the, obviously the links will be in the show notes. He's got some really interesting views about entrepreneurship and what happens when more people are able to invest in businesses. And he's a particular champion in helping young people to start their own businesses. But he comes at it from our kind of angle. So I think you'll find him interesting. Looking forward to it. But before we do that, we have a couple of regular features, starting with Beige's biases, where an old friend of the podcast, behavioural finance expert Neil Beige, gives us his one-minute introduction to a different behavioural bias 
that affects how we make decisions about money. And this week, Neil is going to tell us all about hindsight bias. Hindsight bias. If you've ever heard yourself saying, I knew that all along, or I knew that would happen, the reality is, if we're being honest with ourselves, that most of the time we actually didn't know it all along. We just felt as if we did. When we allow this to impact our decisions, it's called hindsight bias. Behavioural scientists have shown that there are three levels to hindsight bias that kind of stack on top of each other like a pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid is hindsight bias based on memory distortion. This means we misremember previous views or opinions and end up saying something along the lines of, I said that would happen. The second level is based on our belief that an outcome is inevitable, and we find ourselves saying something along the lines of, it had to happen. The third and final level is based on us believing that we can predict an outcome correctly, and we end up saying something along the lines of, I knew that would happen. The problem with hindsight bias is that by pretending, and that's what it is, that you knew something all along, it actually prevents us from learning from our mistakes. It means we are less accountable for our decisions, less critical of ourselves, and it allows us to become overconfident in our ability to make good decisions. I think we can all recognise a bit of that, can't we? <laughs> oh my goodness. Definitely. You wait, you wait for that to come full, like that will come full on post this lockdown pandemic and everything. And people will be saying an awful lot of I told you so, I knew it would be that way. When quite frankly, we didn't have a bloody clue a year ago. And when it comes to, to personal finance and investing and all that kind of stuff, I, th I think there's a big application of this to, the, to, to how people invest their money, Tomo, isn't there? Oh, hugely. This whole idea that you can, you look back and say, oh, I've, sometimes it's actually purely luck. You make a decision, oh, I knew it was going to happen. And it's kind of backs this the idea that you're kind of some kind of oracle, which is absolute farce. Um, but yeah, time in the market was a big one. I remember back in March 2020 when the stock market was absolutely tanking. And, you know, I was just having conversations with a few clients. Most of them were, 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 were pretty, pretty well, they understood that it's actually about just holding through those bad, bad times and it will usually come good in the end and hold, hold steady. We just don't know when it will come good. But there was a few going, right, what are we going to do? What are we, where are we going to move it to? What are we, you know, it's just like we're doing nothing. It's actually an active decision to do nothing. Um, it'd be the best thing you can do. And actually it's turned out that way. Maybe there's some hindsight bias for me there. <laughs> yeah, financially, it's just that timing of the market is if you get it right, your hindsight bias would make you feel as though you're amazing. You're some Nostradamus, but you get it wrong. You get it wrong. You need to learn that and own that. Yeah, you need to really own it. It's his point about, about if you have strong hindsight, but it will stop you from learning from your mistakes. I think that's the takeaway from that for me. Yeah, thanks, guys, for that. And, and thanks also again to Neil uh, for his continued contribution to the podcast. I really enjoy, though, I just find he has the knack within a minute to be able to sum something up in a really succinct way that gives us food for thought, as we've demonstrated on yeah. every podcast. The opposite of what me and Chris are able to do. <laughs> well, I, d I didn't want to say that. As, but... as de demonstrated by my ramblings then, so you can ignore the last couple of minutes. Guys, yeah, so just listen to Neil. Just listen to Neil. Um, can, I just plug, can I just plug Neil a moment? Um, if I may, sorry, Chris, I keep button across, but I'm trying to do my producery bit. Uh, Neil has released with his, uh, with his company, BIQ, the Bite Size Behaviour Podcast. And I highly recommend you go and have a listen to that. It goes into some of this, 
these topics in a little bit more detail. I think they're, as I say, bite-sized and more than 10 minutes long, um, where he's going to cover more of what he's spoken about in this podcast in more detail. So go check it out. And also, I was just going to mention the fact that we do also have a, um, our own interview with uh, with Neil on one of our mm. old podcasts, so people can check that one out as well. Yes. Great. Well, that's good. That's good, Chris. I'm impressed. Excellent. Okay, let's move on then to the next of our regular features, Tight Ass Tomo, where producer Tomo, who's well known within financial circles for, let's say, looking after his money wisely, uh, comes up with a top tip about how you can save money. But before we come on to Tomo's tip, Chris, have you got one this week? I do. Uh, somewhat controversial. It, it's from the news um, this week. I don't know if you saw this story, but it seems that a Japanese man dated 35 women at the same time and gave them different birthdays for him in order that he could get presents all year round. <laughs> now, on the, at the outset, that sounds like a cracking idea. However... There is a bit of sobering, sobering thought to this because the women found out about it. They formed a victims association and the man has been arrested for fraud. So actually, the real message of this story is that not all easy money making schemes are a good idea. Well, that's brilliant. And Chris, I would remind you of something that you've said on a previous podcast, which is how you put false birthdays on your different social media accounts <laughs> yeah. so, that, so that nobody knows when your real birthday is. So, Jacques! That is true, although um, although I don't gain financially from that process. I would quickly add. <laughs> right, OK. So my tip is, uh, my, my Titus Tomo tip this week is, what you should do is you should set up a podcast in order for you and your colleague to market your business really, really well, get your mate to host it and not pay him very, very much. <laughs> yeah. If we could find someone to come on to talk about that, you'd, that would be quite interesting. You'd never find anybody stupid enough to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Tomo, what have you got for us this week? Oh, dear. Um, right. But tip number one is absolutely listen to what David said and make sure you you don't pay people properly. I don't think that's completely fair. God. I don't want us to be seen as complete tight asses. He's, he's the Gary Lineker of the podcast world. <laughs> I, I, I'll have you know, you were paid when we definitely weren't 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 seeing any any kind of uh, any kind of reward from this podcast. Let's not get dragged down you. to his level, Tomo. Come on. <laughs> no, all right. No, please uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know? I think I've got a good one. And it's for those you're going to have to be a bit organised from this uh, with this, and it's something I spotted on old uh, the 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 original Money Saver. Let's be honest is is Martin Lewis and his his Money Savings Expert. Uh, they do research on when's the best time to get quotes on your car insurance, mm. and it actually changes the closer you get to your renewal date, you'll find you'll get different quotes. And they found the perfect time was between twenty to twenty six days before you needed to renew you got better quotes so I, I i didn't quite work out why or how but that was the ever that was the research they've done um so there you go if you're more organized three weeks four weeks before you're due your your car insurance is due for renewal get those quotes in you'll you'll find that you might save yourself a bit of money that's do you know i i find car insurance fascinating because in the financial advice world, what you do is you, if you do the job properly, is you look after your client, you see them regularly, and you give them good advice, and then you keep your client. In the car insurance world, what you do is for existing customers, you shaft them, and because every single renewal I've ever had, the premium's gone up, and I found it cheaper with a different company. 
why don't they try and keep their clients? Wouldn't that mystifies me? Such crazy mm. business business uh, practice. Yeah, it's very strange, and I think it's since you know I get the impression that computer algorithms have taken over sound financial judgment from an individual, and they've worked out that that's a business model that works for them, and it's more about how they can make more money for their business at the expense of their clients, which I find very, very disappointing, and certainly not uh, uh, along the lines of financial well-being principles that we've discussed. Anyway, enough of that. Let's move on for the Grumpy Old Men podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And the Grumpy Millennial. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I I can't believe I fit into that age bracket, and quite comfortably as well. Yeah. So, Chris, let's move on then to the main event, your interview with Ash Phillips. Tell us more. Yeah, so so Ash is all about, there's a phrase that he uses called democratising angel investment. Now, there's at least two words there that a lot of people won't recognise. So let's let Ash tell us all about how he helps young small businesses to get funding and to grow. Ash, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thanks, mate. Refreshed after a week off. The first thing I'm doing, I'm a, I'm a week back. So, uh, yeah, glad to be with you. Brilliant. Oh, we'll, we'll get the very best of you then, hopefully. All <laughs> <laughs> the worst, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, to start off with, why don't you just tell me a little bit about Yenna and how you got this going and, and, and what work it does? Yenna is a startup ecosystem by subscription, uh, a lot of jargon in there. So what we really do is we provide benefits for businesses in the same way you would, you would subscribe to Netflix. So a couple of quid a month, you get access to uh, all the things we would argue that you need uh, to start and grow a business. The early stage up to kind of uh, scaling, I guess, if you want to call it that way, uh, across all different types of sectors or different types of, uh, of locations and, and circumstances. The whole idea is to democratize entrepreneurship. We started as a meetup, uh, one little meetup, five people about seven years ago, and then those grew and eventually we had to figure out a business model. So yeah, it's, uh, it's an accidental business that now spans a number of countries, which is something we're really proud of. Um, connecting people globally, do that as a team of two from Bristol. And yeah, and we're very much about trying to help the next generation to access entrepreneurial opportunity. So there's a few phrases that, that, you, that you use there, Ash, that I'm going to immediately pick up on. Democratize sure. entrepreneurship. What, yeah. do you mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, entrepreneurship as a, as a career has become, I guess, kind of a zeitgeist since the, the birth of programs like Dragon's Den, which are very miseducating about what the world of investment looks like or the apprentice which is also miseducating about what the world of entrepreneurship looks like but because of, of awareness of media um, like that people will start to see this as a genuine career path problem exists in the fact that entrepreneurship could and can be done regardless of who you are and where you are it's just the act of selling something to somebody be it time you know, talent or, or product um, but there are a lot of perceived barriers and a lot of actual barriers that stand in the way, which are access to networks, access to finance if required, which I know we'll probably dig into today, uh, confidence, generational level anxiety and loneliness, access to technology, which is fantastic, but is also isolating in of itself, ironically, um, and a whole bunch of other things. So what we like to do is try to bring all of those barriers down by making starting out more affordable by educating people regardless of where they are and who they are without applying an application process to any of this, but making the pricing as affordable as possible for, we would argue, anybody anywhere within reason to charge something. Unfortunately, we're a business, we've got to make some money too, and, uh, and bringing people together to, to build confidence through peer support. So that's, that's generally what we're trying to do, because otherwise you do get an ivory tower effect where 
most of the businesses do well seem to be, or, or according to the outside world that quote unquote do well seem to be centered around tech hubs, London, San Francisco, etc. They're the ones that get written about anyway. So we want to lower that barrier and, and spread it across everywhere. Fantastic. So you deal with, with startup businesses or early stage businesses. You've obviously seen, I know you've been doing this for quite a few years because we've known each other a little while. Uh, yeah. In your experiences, what's the main blockages to startup businesses and, and uh, young businesses getting investment? Getting investment, I think it is, it is access. Unfortunately, it's access to networks. It's, it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. And I hate that phrase because I think it is both. Like you can know all the people you need to know, but if you don't have anything to sell them, then you don't really have a business. But if you've got the best widget in the world, but don't know anybody to sell it to, then you also don't have a business. So you do need both. But um, as you know, working class lad from just outside the suburbs of Bristol, officially South Gloucestershire, born and raised in Filton, it's not you know it's not an area of affluence, and uh, and so one if I wanted to go and access funding, there's this um, uh, nomenclature in in investment now, which is you know your friends and family round, which would be your first round of funding if if you follow kind of the VC cycle of fundraising, which goes friends and family seed or pre seed now seed Series A Series B and and the alphabet continues uh, depending on how much more you want to raise going forwards to grow. Um, and friends and family rounds in the likes of San Francisco would be, you know, accepted as anywhere in the six-figure range, right? £100,000, £250,000, £500,000. Friends and family round for me would be about 50 quid. And, you know, <laughs> it's that is the limitation. There are, for me to go and access, you know, proper, a, a good chunk of finance up until uh, I realized what, angel networks or investment really was my main route uh, because of lack of education on this was to go to a bank and get a loan that's what i've been brought up on understanding you know investment and finance to be now i know that you know kind of behind the veil as it were of the other networks that, that exist that there are syndicates and and uh, and groups that come together of high net worth individuals individuals that invest but those people look very similar to one another they don't really necessarily understand me i don't necessarily understand them ironically i look a little bit like them because i always joke that you know part of the problem is being white middle class and male and you know i'm two out of three of those and if i get rich enough i'll be three out of three so i'll be part of the problem <laughs> but, uh, well yeah i was gonna say you, you you look like they used to look like <laughs> yeah hopefully for hopefully i'll look like this a little while longer but um <laughs> but yeah you know access to them is difficult half the time they're out on their boat and i'm like what even i how do you even afford that? It's crazy. So there's this jarring of socioeconomic divide that um, stops people from accessing that sort of investment. And prior to that, the education of even understanding what it is in the first place. Is there also a mismatch in the definitions of success? What I mean by that, a lot of the angel investors are seeing their investment purely in financial returns, whereas the person running a business is often doing it for a deep purpose. Yeah. Yeah, there is. that. And there's kind of an an irony here that it may just be a par- it may just be paradoxical. It may just be that you know I don't have enough data on this, and this is purely uh, speculation. But it may, on one side, be that the people that care about impact more than they care about finance don't become the people that are wealthy, and that's why we've got this generational problem of the money coming down from only the people that care about money on it on a general basis. A few of them get through, where you'll find 
the old high net high net worth person who is interested in investing in stuff that does genuinely change the world. But of course, they're rich because they cared about money and the return is important to them. However small or big it is, it's, you know, this is great. It's going to help some people. But also what's my return going to be within one to five to 10 years, depending on what their investor profile looks like. And so the people that would that don't take that uh, approach would then otherwise rather than be called investors be be known as philanthropists right you're 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 more so giving your money away and if something comes back then that's great too but actually it's just about making an impact but i think that what we're seeing more and more about it right now is the prevalence of the balance of the two oh it's not unreasonable to assume that i can have a positive impact on the world whilst making some money because both make the other go round faster it's kind of maybe quite a leftist way of looking at things, but I believe that that's, that's possible, you know, so, socially conscious capitalism, I guess, uh, without sounding like too much of a hippie. That, that's a great, I was thinking philanthropic investment, but mm. conscious, conscious capitalism is also a great way. It's a conscious capitalism, the idea. So where do these people live? You know, if somebody has got a great idea but they're not that fussed about making huge returns from the money. They just want to see success in terms of impact of what they're doing. Where do they find that, that sort of investor? They're, they are hard to find. And that's the problem. They're a needle in a haystack. You'll have to go through a whole bunch of people that aren't the right balance of that to find the one that is. So do um, they hang out with the guys that aren't like that? Is it just, a, you know, you, you've, got, you've got 30 white middle-aged men in a room and one of them's a guy you want? Potentially, yeah, that's one version of, of the events, but often they'll be the person that's kind of pissed off in that room because they, you know, they're not in a, a, a room of people like them. There is something different about them. Often I'm finding in my travels that they're uh, quite standoffish to that and they're trying to break that. But the problem is that in trying to break that, they end up being kind of lone wolves, as it were. And, and therefore much harder to find because, you know, it's easy to find people in groups, harder to find people that are, that are riding solo. So there's one person in Bristol that um, I won't name for now, but, you know, they live in probably quite a nice house. I haven't seen it up in Clifton somewhere uh, who, who would match the investor profile of somebody that just wants to do good. But has also made a very reasonable amount of money in their life from an exit of a, of a very successful company. Unbeknownst now, I'm sure when they started it, they thought it probably would do well, did probably far better than it did. And now they want to do something interesting and, and help people. The ability to do that is obviously afforded far more easily by the amount of money that's likely in their bank account. But they are kind of anarchist versus the 80 plus person syndicate that exists in Bristol. There is uh, the opposite of that, that, that want to invest in things that are incredibly safe, that guarantee a return and almost they do probably care about the the impact a little bit or a couple of them at the very least would, but on a whole, it's all about the return rather than, than the impact, regardless of what the PR would say. So they are harder to find. My general route to finding those people would ironically be, and this is a part of the work that Yeno wants to do and the part of the work that I'm passionate about is, ironically, it's about knowing the people that know those people that know those people. And so yeah. it's a first, second, third degree warm introduction to that person. Twitter, on the other hand, though, is, is a marvelous tool, I think, for business development and building relationships in that way. And the ability to reach out to somebody who describes themselves as that in their bio, obviously, is the first thing you have to figure out whether they're telling the truth or not. But once <laughs> you find that person, asking that question, jumping on a call is, is actually easier than you think. During lockdown, I've had far more phone calls with people in America um, than I've ever had before. And the vast majority of those people have been 
more about the stuff that I've uh, wanted them to be about because of the fact that I've been able to now find them on Twitter. There's this process of matching, isn't there? Because uh, you've got to get the right investor with the right with the right person. And I've been around yeah. that world long enough to see that fail plenty of times, particularly <laughs> private equity, where they come in and demand 20% per annum and you know for five years and a guaranteed exit. And it's just completely unreasonable and everything falls apart. There's a business idea here. Okay, Ash, I'm going to pitch a business idea to you, right? Why don't we set up a club for people who want to invest in small businesses, but they they want to get their capital back one day, but they're not fussed about uh, income. Do you reckon that? That's a fantastic that idea. I'm 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 curious if that does, it didn't exist already. Then it's quite sad that it doesn't. Um, and if it doesn't, then uh, you know I'm all for it. I think those people want to find other people like them. They strengthen those numbers. I've had a couple of conversations this year, as you know, with people that are talking about you know. Uh, and a, lot, a parallel mission with ours around democratizing angel investment, which obviously ours is democratizing entrepreneurship, and those go hand in hand. So if you can get people that are, you know, unaware of what angel investment is as an asset class or in a, as an investment strategy to to start exploring that, you know, maybe siphoning off a, a tiny percentage of their pension, then that would be powerful. You've got the next gen coming through that are using apps on their phones, like free trade, which I play around with, which is really fun, but obviously you're gambling your money too. But there's a difference, isn't there, between that kind of crowdfunding type thing, which has obviously been fantastic and is a really good way of of investing. But but I'm thinking more in terms of the... Because you know that white middle-aged man, let's be honest, has actually got a lot of experience. I know mm. it's a cliche that, that that's all they are, but they have got a lot of experience. So I'm talking about the I'll stick in fifty grand into your business, and I'll also take a non-exec position, and I'll give you some of my benefit. Yeah. But our aim is impact, not a, not return. You know, yeah, for those sure. are the people that that. So so let me ask another question, and I'll let me test another theory of mine. I'm guessing, or I believe that there's a disconnect between the people the older person who's looking to invest the bosses if you like the equity people and the young entrepreneurs coming through who aren't necessarily motivated by money these days is yeah. that true yeah in a in a, in a percentage could generalizing argue yeah. necessarily about the percentage but yeah generally there's a slight disconnect it's the it's I think it's probably been popularized over the last decade around like the people that investing in the people that want to change the world, because those people, those founders will be talking about the size of the vision, number of people they can impact and so on. And the investors will then do the job of translating that into what that looks like when it turns into money later on. Um, and so it's a case of making sure that, that, that that's understood from both sides rather than trying to make one understand like talk like the other one to have founders that really want to make a difference and do something at scale start talking about what that looks like in monetary returns is powerful and helpful but it also starts distracting them we don't want to turn them into into financial advisors in their own right if their job is to build a an amazingly scaled biscuit company right they just want to be able to understand how to make the best biscuits in the world and in doing so the investor's job is to go great i'm the commercial mind that actually looks like money at the end of the day we'll sell that to my fifties in five to ten years but they don't need to force the founder to understand necessarily that that's the case um the founder's job is to be the founder and to lead the company and to drive the vision and also be you know have their hands in all the other pies of the business too so to understand a bit of the commercial but not also not all of it and the same with the investor they need to understand that you know that yes, they want the monetary returns, but the person that's doing this is doing it for probably a, a reason, a purpose. You know, the, the Simon Sinek's why isn't 
that popular for, for no reason. It's because people are doing it with, with purpose half the time. And so, yeah, I think, I think if they could both understand each other a little bit better, that would be great. And having the ability to translate in between the two would be pretty powerful. That's our job. And it's, and you know, it's, it's the job of financial advisors too. Right. So yeah, I think it's, there's a, there's a gap in between there that there can always be more work done in. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So look, just to finish off then, can you, uh, you've obviously dealt with an awful lot of uh, startups and, and young growing businesses. Can you, if you were going to give three tips, kind of myth busting tips about uh, starting up your own business, what would it, what would they be? I think the, the first and biggest one is that imposter syndrome is a big thing. You always think that, you know, you're not quite good enough, but the reality is, and this is the, this is the first tip that nobody knows what they're doing. Like everybody's literally making it up as they go along. And some people are just slightly more convincing about that than others are. And, you know, unsurprisingly they tend to do better because everybody else assumes that they know what they're doing and then puts their trust and their money in them. So confidence slash delusion is a powerful thing and understanding and being self-aware about that allows you to create more success as a result there is a sense there is a case of of course faking it so you make it balanced with making it and not faking it and so you have to be very aware of that because if you if you fake it for too long then it all falls down but just being confident about the thing that you're building and why you're doing it and selling it for some money is is the first thing and yeah then then the, the second one was around and this is so obvious but it just goes unsaid in so many kind of like startup workshops and other things. Everybody's focused on their brand or their website or whatever. Make money, like sell something. That's people forget that business is, is as simple as that. There are so many complexities and it's also not that easy to sell something, but get something that somebody wants, give it to them and get money in return and ideally get more money than it costs you to make it in the first place. If more businesses understood that fundamental or practiced, I'm sure they all understand, but if they practice that fundamental understanding, then less businesses would fail. You see a lot of overcomplication, do you? Yeah, a lot of overcomplication. You know, you've got the likes of, if you want to go super household namey, then WeWork is a good example. Their argument was, we'll get to scale, then we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll use this VC funding to supplement the cost of our desks for a long time. Those desks are still seven, 800 pounds a month, and, you know, way more than uh, anywhere else in, in any location. The experience, the user experience was amazing. All of that was great. You know, have we got hair gels in our, in our toilets, in every toilet, in every office, just in case somebody needs it, or, or a hairdryer, or a brush, or, or we're giving free coffee to people, there's beer on tap, on Friday. All of that sounds amazing, but are you making money? And if the market shifts, do you die? And so what we've seen now is the reality of that scenario, which is yes, you know, if you could find a building that was slightly cheaper or do the experience in a slightly more affordable way and charge maybe slightly more, would the model have worked far better? And the answer is also yes, because we've seen Regis doing it for a long time. And yes, they're less exciting, but the model works and people, people's jobs are, are relatively safe. Yeah, I so, a friend of mine setting up his own financial advice business and um, they got a really nice office. They all bought themselves on Lisa BMW. Um, and then they sat in this, in this office and went, well, we haven't got any clients. <laughs> <laughs> the excitement of the new business, you know. Exactly. And that is the thing. I think generationally there is a danger right now because there's such a glamour or a perceived glamour around entrepreneurship and, and entrepreneurialism as a career. It's easy to change your Instagram bio to founder or entrepreneur, but it's much harder to actually sell something and do the job. Arguably, the people that are doing it properly are the people that care less about the glamour as a kind of a juxtaposition there. So, yeah, the, the, the first one is nobody knows what they're doing. So don't worry about 
not knowing yourself. The second thing is sell something. And then I think to make it relevant to, to, to our conversation, the third thing specifically in, in relation to this would be around investment. So we've been going through this process ourselves. We're not looking for investments to survive. We've figured out our model. Now it's to scale. Um, we could do it, but it'll take us seven years and I'd like to do it in three instead. And so I'm happy to give some of my company away to make that happen with, with an investor that is right for us, understands the impact as well as the return. But what we're getting constantly with every conversation is, you know what they say about opinions and what they're like. Everybody has one and everybody will give you feedback on your pitch deck. Everyone will give you feedback on your business plan. Everyone will give you feedback about what they think you should do next. The reality is, is that they're not running the business. You are uh, at whatever stage and you know the vision of, of the company and it's your job to bring that about. It's very easy as someone who's in more of like a beggar position with your hands out asking for money to take all of that advice verbatim and to presume that that they know better than you and you should be doing it in the way that they've just told you. That gets really confusing if you have five of those conversations in a week and everybody says something different. By the end of the week, you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing because everybody thinks I should do something different. The final piece of advice is, is similar to the first piece of advice is just to be super confident in where you're going as a company. And if people want to invest or they want to join along the way, and get them to believe in your vision rather than kind of pandering to what they think the company should look like. You started it for a reason and so you should build it. Um, taking advice is important, of course, but yeah, believing in yourself, I guess, is, is the important thing. That rather remind me when, of when Liverpool Football Club hired Graham Souness as their manager because he was an ex-player. Yeah. And uh, Liverpool are, certainly were, I think probably are, well known for kind of flowing... Uh, stylish football, and of course, Graham Souness is not that kind of football, <laughs> not that kind of manager, and it was a complete mismatch, and it, and it didn't did not work. So yeah, get somebody that that is aligned with your vision, that believes in the same stuff that you do. Brilliant, that's great 100%. advice. Ash, fantastic talking to you as ever, mate. Thanks ever so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. Well, some really interesting stuff there, but Chris, I have a question for you uh, for about this now. Uh, as a good friend of yours and indeed someone that follows you closely on social media, I know that that, that a particular bugbear of yours, and you have quite a few, but a particular <laughs> a particular bugbear of yours is your um, uh, dislike for, should we say, recruiters. The fact that you have these people who who act as a as a bridge between uh, a company that wants to employ people and people that want to be employed by the company, and I think your argument about recruiters is, you know, they're unnecessary. They just get in the way. They're creaming money off the top, and they're getting in in the way of you as a business owner that wants to just access people yourself, and that you really resent being approached by those recruiters. So, the question I have for you is, what's different about Ash's model? in terms of where he's positioning himself in the market, somewhere in between young would-be entrepreneurs and angel investors? So two answers. Firstly, uh, just to, I think I should give a slight clarification on my dislike for recruiters, which is real, and I'm not disagreeing, uh, but it's most recruiters. There are some good recruiters out there. Um, the bad ones, which I think is probably the majority, don't act as a bridge, they act as a blocker in order that they can they can make some money from the process. But there are plenty of good ones as well. So let's just, before we get any hate mail. Um, coming back to then to then what Ash does and people like him, you have a lot of wealthy people who are looking to invest in small businesses who don't always have that business's best intentions in mind. We touched on this in the interview, talking about the, the lack of, of investors who are actually looking for young businesses with purpose and they're just looking to make money. So there's quite a lot of what we might call predatory investors people out there who may not be uh acting in in, in the most uh, the best of intentions uh so 
Ash has a really important role, and the likes of Ash has a really important role there of matching the right people together to make sure that where somebody does want to invest in a business with purpose, that, that, that they find the right business. So I think he's is performing a really important role. A lot of young people really have no idea about business. Of course, they, why would they? You know, you only really know about business through experience. You can't really learn it in the classroom. So uh, he brings in all of his experience to help people and to help young entrepreneurs to get the best advice. So, uh, yeah, it is different, to be fair to him. Right, that's very clear. Uh, Tomo, what were your thoughts about what Ash had to say? I think what made me a little bit sad, actually, and I guess he's trying to address this, was the idea that you could have a really good idea, you could have a pretty good business, yet because you don't necessarily come from money, you can't get it off the ground. And um, any way that can improve that situation can only be better for all of us because we all, as human beings need good ideas to keep coming through to 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 make sure life becomes you know develops you know the human race needs to keep evolving and moving and all that sort of thing so yeah i that worried me a little bit but overall they're clearly trying to do something to to counteract that um but yeah i think having some support for younger business owners and then yeah enabling them to navigate uh, I think it's helpful. And also having somewhere that you've got a bit of a support network. You know, I've not experienced it personally because I, I've not in, been in those shoes, but I've spoken to a lot of business owners and including Chris that certainly at the start, it can be incredibly lonely. Mm, I absolutely agree with that. The, the The socially conscious capitalism thing is really interesting to me. And there are people out there there's not many, but there are people out there and there are groups and organisations, purpose-led businesses, if there's been a bit of a movement in this. It links it with my other hat on with the Employee Ownership Trust and succession planning for businesses. And I come across a lot of businesses which are very purpose-driven and don't just want to make as much money as possible. Uh, they are out there, but getting investment for very young companies like that is still quite hard. So power to his elbow and let's hope that he manages mm-hmm. to get more of that happening. Quite Brilliant. That's excellent. So... That's almost all we've got time for today. So while Chris and Tomo go off to enjoy a lunch of lobster thermidor and champagne, I'm going to dig into a bowl of gruel and we'll catch up with you next time for another one of our financial wellbeing podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs>